Now, welcome back, everyone. If you can turn your videos on, that would be great to be able to see people. So I want to follow some from what I explored last week, but to go in a somewhat uh, different direction than I was going last time, but to still have it uh, be continuous. Last time I was uh, inspired uh, by the confluence of three holidays and three of the major religions and the confluence of Passover, Easter, and Ramadan. And Ramadan and uh, yeah, Ramadan is still happening. I think we're still in the Passover time. And uh, so I explored these in relationship to uh, in relationship to Buddhist practice. And we could ask questions like, uh, ones that are that are quite interesting, like do the different traditions sort of converge at their deepest expression or their highest expression? You know, often um, people have said that in the in the deepest mystical understandings of different traditions, there's a convergence. We can ask those kind of questions. We could also ask. Uh, are there contributions by each of the traditions that are important for us now? And so I, w I explored these, um, particularly in relation to the Buddhist understanding of freedom and liberation. So we looked at uh, Passover as a kind of origin story of the Jewish people, even though scholars have said that it's actually uh, probably didn't didn't happen in the way that uh, the story goes. Uh, you know, some scholars think that it actually was um, about a different period of time. But in any case, it's a, the origin story is of moving from slavery and bondage uh, to freedom. You know, and the the uh, Hebrew word for Egypt is uh, Mitzrayim, which uh, refers to a, a condition of being in narrow straits or being constricted, uh, constricted uh, spiritually, having confusion or fragmentation. And so there, there you know, in the, in the traditions related to Passover, there's this emphasis on coming out of, coming out of slavery. And we talked also about the uh, relation of the understanding of liberation from social bondage to the, to the whole model of uh, spiritual liberation in Buddhist practice. And again, that's being emphasized a lot these days as we're looking at both, we might say, both inner and outer liberation. And then we looked at Easter, and I particularly frame that in terms of um, the resurrection, meaning that there's no longer, in, in a deep sense, a fear of death, that there's something that goes beyond death, which has a very strong link with Buddhist practice. You know, and I, I quoted last time the, this proclamation by the Buddha, open the doors of the deathless, that there's something that our being is connected with that goes beyond life and death. That's the claim. It's actually the claim, again, we can see it in multiple traditions. It's certainly what we find in Buddhist tradition, and I think we find it here in the, um, the story of Easter. And then with, with Ramadan, this month-long, really intensification of practice. Interestingly, the, the Ramadan commemorates the initial revelation of the Prophet Muhammad, which again is a kind of a revelation of the deep spiritual nature of things. And so, you know, in Ramadan there's a dedication to prayer 
and study and letting go of a lot of focus and other things. One can't use tobacco. Uh, one doesn't drink or eat during daylight. Right? And so it's the, the aim is to let go of a lot and focus on, on what's important. And so I, w I was reflecting, there was, there was interest in following this last time, and I was, I was seeing what, what called me as a theme. And again, we could go in different directions, and maybe we'll do another time. One direction would be to look at the commonality uh, across traditions, or the way that, as I believe, what we need now for the resources that are capable of helping us in both our inner work and our response to crises, we actually need resources from all the world's traditions. And uh, I think that that's a helpful perspective. I, I once directed a program that was an interfaith program looking at uh, what we called socially engaged spirituality. And we had three foundations. We had the foundations of the inner contemplative work, which, which we find in multiple traditions, but we particularly drew it from, from uh, Asian traditions. And then we also had a rootedness in the uh, social justice emphasis, which we find coming from what are sometimes called the Abrahamic traditions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And then thirdly, the uh, resources from indigenous traditions that connect us particularly with earth and with uh, community. And we said we need all, all three of those resources we need at our present time. That could be where we go. I'm not going to go there today. With a nice introduction if I was, but I, I'm not going not to open up today. But what, what came up to me partly in talking with people in the last week and you know, talking with people who were, you know, several people very touched by and impacted by what was happening in Ukraine. You know, I have a I have a meeting once a month with an international, small international group of uh, teachers. And one teacher from Germany was talking just about the, you know, the uh, presence of uh, refugees and just the, uh, the closeness of all that was happening there. And other people I worked with were, you know, very focused, you know, maybe even too focused on what was happening there. And, and we're having uh, forms of anxiety and e even fear coming, coming up. And also having that come up with several people in other contexts I work with. So, I actually, and then, and, uh, yeah, so basically there are some other things too, but I, I thought actually that what I wanted to explore is how to practice with fear or anxiety. I think that's very much there in, particularly in the first two contexts of Passover and, and Easter. And so I want to explore how we can understand and practice with fear. It's a, it's a very central topic in Buddhist practice. And what I want to do is outline some ways of practicing and invite you, if you wish, to take this as a theme to explore in the next period of time. And, and then I would, you know, resume exploring this when I come back in a few weeks. And so... Um, again, we can, we can see how it's actually a very crucial theme, whether it's in relationship to, you know, being witness to war and destruction and incredible brutality, you know, and how do we, how do we hold that? Or whether it's the level of fear connected with political polarization, you know, in many countries, including the United States. A lot, you know, there's there's a lot of fear out there, isn't there? There's a lot of fear where, you know, it can take many, many forms. And it's often, um, the fear is often manipulated by uh, people who want power. I think we know that.
And of course, we also have fear as part of our daily lives at times, or it may take take a form of anxiety. And I, I was thinking of it in terms of uh, Passover, that there, you know, that we could see that, you know, how do I, how do we relate to, you know, if, if we're in the Passover story, how do we relate to being in bondage or having slavery? You know, will this state continue? And there was, uh, you know, I think there was, we start to see also qualities that are very helpful for working with fear or anxiety, qualities like faith or courage or, or equanimity or compassion start to start to be there. So we could look at the, you know, the being in slavery in Egypt and we could ask, uh, was there a sense of faith in, in Yahweh, in the, in the, uh, the being that uh, was taken to have great power and actually help bring about the liberation from, from bondage through, through you know, bringing about plagues in Egypt, according to the story, and then the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. So is there faith that one will come through this situation or is there fear? And I think it's also, I think also what I emphasized last time, part of the story I think in a contemporary way is knowing also that uh, we each have the potential to be Pharaoh. We have the potential to be oppressors. And so how do we, you know, how do we work with that? Is there, you know, do we, how do we explore that? Is there a deep faith in, freedom as our basic nature. That's what we have, I think, from these multiple traditions, a sense of freedom being one's different, one's core nature. You know, it's something like the phrase that we hear from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And is there, you know, is that a way to, to work with the fear? And I, I also interpreted um, uh, Easter very much in terms of coming beyond a fear, in this case, a fear of death. And in the Christian tradition, this can be taken again to point to the fact that even what we may most fear, which is death, although uh, actually uh, when they do polls, Generally, the result is that people fear public speaking more than death. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know that uh, I had to go through that gauntlet, so to speak, when I was coming into teaching, because being a somewhat introverted person, you know, I, I did not have an easy time coming into this teaching role. And I, I remember the first time I ever gave a public talk, like when I was in my 20s. Uh, it was, you know, it was in person, it wasn't on Zoom, but my, actually my knees were knocking. So my knees would go like that. But I, I think it's the only time I've experienced it so dramatically. My knees were moving like two or three feet every few seconds. It was, so that was connected with, with, with uh, fear, you know, and so, but anyway, we'll come back to that. But you know, we often think fear of death is the big one, but it may not be. <laughs> it may be, it may be something else. So something, something to look at. But that the interpretation of Easter as showing that the fear of death need not be our ultimate perspective. That we can actually have a sense that death is not ultimate. That's a way to interpret this particular holiday. Right. And, uh, you know, I mentioned, I think, last time how the theologian Thomas Aquinas said that there are actually two resurrections. One is when you're alive. And then if you actually have the sense of death not being ultimately when you're alive, you don't need the second resurrection. <laughs> it was interesting. A little bit of sense of humor there with Mr. Aquinas. 
Okay, and uh, yeah, and so that's a way of interpreting it. And I, I was also thinking of the kind of the sense of fear and abandonment, which I didn't mention next last time, which Jesus expressed on the cross, right at the, you know, as he was dying, you know, the, those words, uh, "My God, My God, why hast why hast thou forsaken me?" Right, that came at the most intense moment of the crucifixion. You know, it's kind of a little mysterious how to interpret that, but there's a kind of a fear of, at that moment at least, um, being separated from the, uh, from the sacred or the divine. That's, at least that's one way of interpreting it. And then when I, look, when I look to Ramadan, there also are aspects of fear, a little, I think, less central, but for many people, there can be a fear of fasting, that, you know, a fear of going, actually going without water and food, any liquid and food. There can be a fear of that or a fear of being apart from what gives habitual pleasure. One gives up during Ramadan, one gives up uh, tobacco, one gives up uh, sexual relationships and so forth. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, explore fear. And I have, uh, actually I, in my study, I have a, a poster, um, which is from the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is a poster uh, of one of their productions. It was a show called the story of one who set out to study fear. And it shows a being who's studying fear. And the title is actually in the heart of this person. So what I want to do is explore how do we practice with fear? What is fear? What kind of tools uh, work? You know, how can we bring this both into our personal experience, but also in terms of some of the larger uh, social dimensions. As I mentioned, you know, we can have fear at times around, you know, any number of social issues related to war or political polarization, climate disruption, you know, perceptions of crime and so forth. And, you know, and then recognizing also that there many figures, especially politicians, who often can, uh, for their own power, can stoke fear and even manipulate, manipulate fear. So, so what is fear? One of the beautiful strengths of our practice, and not what we put in our advertising material, is that we get to study fear like that bread and puppet show, we get to study fear at times. Again, we don't put it in the brochures. I haven't looked at them recently, but for Spirit Rock, it doesn't say, come, open up to fear, learn about it. We say, we probably, last time I looked, it was more about, you know, insight, calm, compassion, all these wonderful things. And so... Maybe some month we should just have, come, learn about fear. Learn about your five main neuroses. Don't you want to do, come and learn about that? <laughs> anyway, um, in any case, um, our practice gives us tools and perspectives to explore fear. And it can be quite powerful. You know, I'll, I'll talk... I'll talk some about, uh, I had one retreat where I was afraid for about 10 days, about 15 or 16 hours a day for most of the time. And I was able to work with it. The reason I could work with it was that it was in the workable range. It wasn't too much. And I had so much uh, insight about fear, you know, and I'll mention these as I go on. I think the the main one that I'll just mention is that the fear was always fear of something that would occur in the future. 
It was never about present experience. That's a very interesting insight, right? And that it would take the form of narratives. In, in the case of the kind of fears I was looking at, they were mostly clearly false. <laughs> so a lot of fear is based on false narratives that we believe. I'll, you know, I'll talk about how there's also can be intelligence in fear. So I'm not simply at all saying fear is simply an illusion, but some main types of fear are very illusory. Some types of fear are telling us there's danger, watch out, take care. And those, that's what I would call the intelligence of fear. So I'll try to distinguish those as I, as I go through. Um, so there, there, cause there are quite a, a variety of types of fear. So how do we understand fear? Which aspects of fear should we see as helpful? Which should we see as not helpful, not skillful? <clears throat> Which are more connected with, with uh, delusion? And how do we respond skillfully when fear is present? And again, I'll, I'll invite us to explore this in the, in the period from today until when I, when I come back, as much as you'd like. And so I think many people see that uh, working with fear is very, very central to our practice. And so <clears throat> helpful to open up to it when it's there. This is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And you can see, uh, I don't know if you can see behind me, there's a photo of Thich Nhat Hanh with Martin Luther King Jr., you know, two, two beings very familiar with fear and very skilled in working with fear. I'll, you know, I'll tell, I'll tell a story from Dr. King either later today or maybe the next time. And so Thich Nhat Hanh says, we have the power to look deeply at our fears and then fear cannot control us. This is from the poet, uh, William Butler, Butler Yeats. To look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. So to be fully with one's experience actually takes great courage. To do inner work in a way takes more courage than, you know, in his, his example, even being a soldier and coming up against death. <clears throat> and then the last one is from the Sufi poet Hafez. He says, fear is the cheapest room in the, in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. I'll read that again. Hafez, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll explore some of this. I think some of the types of fear are, you know, particularly the ones that are delusive. We can see in a way that um, kind of a, a, the fear connected with delusion is maybe something very, very fundamental. I think, I think, um, the writer and teacher Stephen Batchelor once said that fear is the emotional counterpart of ignorance, of a core ignorance that we have about ourselves. I'll come, I'll come back to that. So let's ask, first of all, what are we afraid of? Let's ask each of us to reflect. What are you afraid of? Take a few moments to reflect. And let's, let's share some now. I think it's probably easiest if we put this in the chat. So I invite you to put, you know, your answer to the question, what are we afraid of? Just have maybe one, two, three words, not, not too much. Put it in the chat and I'll ask Emiko 
uh, to read them as they come through. We'll probably read maybe eight or ten. What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of? We have evil being seen to be what we fear we are. Despite loss of loved ones, fear of own insanity, not being good enough, the death of my husband, failing the people who need me, mm. uncertain future, not to be up to the task. Yeah. And I saw a lack of control was near the beginning also. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, so I think it's helpful to actually start to have a map of what are the areas where there's where there's fear and we can I think just by noting that we can look out for those instances of fear arising kind of have them on our radar and the the one of the ways that we practice is to bring mindfulness you know, and, and also compassion, but especially mindfulness, and just look and see what's there, you know, much as I did for 10 days, 15 hours a day, you know, looking, looking, at, um, looking at fear. When we do this with some depth, for me, after that retreat, fear was never the same, you know, still had fear, but there was some understanding that stayed with me. Also, some willingness to really hang out with the fear, you know. I think, what was it, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt in the United States once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Or, or what's the, yeah, the, like the fear of fear may be the biggest one. And so when we can open up to the fear, uh, it's very significant. It's like uh, mountain climbers have fear but the fear doesn't incapacitate them. Now that though would be an example of what I would call more of a healthy fear. Yeah, yeah, there's danger, but they don't let the fear, as it were, run away with their minds. You know, and maybe some of us experience this at times in some of our activities where there can be fear or some anxiety and we just keep going. Maybe in, you know, could be in public speaking or in some activity where we're not totally comfortable or not so comfortable. Yeah, so maybe, so what are we afraid of? What people mentioned, you know, different, really different sorts of pain. A lot of us are afraid of different versions of the unknown. We're afraid of loss uh, and so forth. And so how do we practice mindfulness of fear or anxiety? You know, those, those of you who have come often on these uh, Wednesdays or worked with me know that my, one of, really my starting point for guidance for mindfulness is to say, be clear about the level of intensity of what you're experiencing. So I like to have that 1 to 10 scale, like the Olympic divers. And that's very important with fear. Because when fear is at the 9 or 10 level, it's actually more skillful to do something which helps us to moderate the fear. And mindfulness may not be possible, right? So it's very important to clarify what's the level of intensity. Is it workable with mindfulness or not, right? And, and that's really crucial, you know, um, that, that it could be that, for example... Uh, something activates some residues of trauma for me or for, for, for someone. And the traumatic act activation is overly intense. And I can't really stay with it without actually doing some re-traumatizing. So in that instance, it's actually skillful to move out of it as best one can. You know, in, you know, in very, various ways by, you know, you know often by going to something very pleasant, opening one's eyes, uh, doing, you know, doing grounding more in the body. There, there are a variety of means. So we want to, I think, first, when we're working with something, ask, is this in the workable range? If it is, 
then we can explore it. Then we can really have a sense. Let me just explore this type of anxiety. What's going on at the level of the body? You know, am I, you know, what am I noticing? What's happening in my body? Is there a tightness in my, my chest? What's going on with my hands? You know, I notice for me, my hands will often tighten. And sometimes noticing when we really have studied our body, we often know that something is happening more from our body that our minds may be just caught up in whatever we're, we're doing. And so really giving attention to the, the bodily manifestations of fear, or actually of anything, but here of fear can be really, really valuable. So study it. What's, when you notice fear that lasts for a while or anxiety, what's it like in the body? Again, that can be a tremendous help for noticing it more quickly, which is so crucial, an aspect of our practice, right? You know, what our mindfulness does, it helps us to notice difficult states sooner before they've taken over and have momentum too much. That's, you know, that's what we can do with our practice. So notice what it's like with my hands or my chest or my, my belly. Where do I personally localize fear or anxiety? We do it differently. You know, some it might be in the shoulders, some in the belly, some in the head, and so forth. So we want to, we want to know our own uh, patterns. You know, some it might be in the head, the jaw, or tension in the side of the head. So we want to, we want to uh, study that. We also want to notice what's going, what's, what does fear or anxiety feel like emotionally? You know, what other emotions, when we stay with it, are there other emotions um, connected with it? You know, what's the, what are the thoughts or narratives going on that we notice? You know, are we repeating one story over and over again? That's what I was doing in my retreat. I would repeat the same thing over and over again. How many people find that familiar, noticing that repetition of a narrative, right? And we can name that narrative and if we can, if we can actually try, you know, try not to feed the narrative when it's occurring. Um, this is from the uh, teacher uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. This is this is about some of the aspects of fear. Uh, think of a deer at night suddenly caught in a hunter's headlights. It's confused. It may be angry. It senses danger and that it's weak in the face of danger, it wants to escape. These five elements, confusion, aversion, a sense of danger, a sense of weakness, and a desire to escape are present to a greater or lesser extent in every fear. The confusion and the aversion are the unskillful elements. Even if the deer has many openings to escape from the hunter, its confusion and aversion might cause it to miss them. The same holds true for human beings. The mistakes and evils we commit when finding ourselves weak in the face of danger come from confusion and aversion. So he's basically saying that some aspects of fear are, you know, that we typically experience are unskillful, but that a sense of danger can be quite skillful. Right? Of course, we can, you know, manufacture a sense of danger where there's not much of one, but um, that would be more the confusion or the delusion. But, you know, some types of fear have clear, you know, clear danger, and it's actually helpful to look at the danger and to respond to the danger skillfully, right? So this is, this is part of the work of mindfulness. We get to see these different components. So it's not simply fear, get rid of it, right? That's not what's being taught here. You know, as with other uh, difficult states, there's often something that's intelligent in the fear, much as we find like with anger. Anger can carry intelligence, for example, about injustice, right? It's not simply a negative state particularly, right? And so, you know, what we want to do is, you know, much as with other states, is to preserve the, the insights or what's intelligent, you know, in this case, the, 
sense of danger and to um, not let the confusion and aversion, the reactivity, predominate. That's, that's a formula for working with uh, fear in the moment. But there's also a tremendous value for bringing mindfulness to it in, in our meditation and when it arises in the moment, right? And so one of the invitations would be, if the, if the circumstances permit it, when fear or anxiety arises, let's say during the day, pause, stop, go into mindfulness mode. Not easy, right? But, uh, and you know, take this as a study, like that bread and puppet show, the one who set out to study fear. By the way, in that show, there was a really good ending. <laughs> the one who set out to study fear had very good results. <laughs> so, and we have, we have, uh, we have wonderful, wonderful tools. Um, So we also want to see what happens to the mind when there's fear. Again, I mentioned how we may be caught, get caught around a narrative. We also may not be able to think very clearly when there's fear, right? We might be really, you know, at the confusion and the aversion might make uh, clear thinking uh, difficult. You know, in a way, you know, we may say at the level of the brain, we go into the uh, survival part of the brain and the prefrontal cortex gets marginalized. You know, what that means is we can't think straight, right? When we're really taken over by the fear. And so when we can do mindfulness and it, it actually can help to uh, actually shift away from that domination, I guess, by the... Uh, you know, by the you know, survival part of the brain, the ancient part of the brain, and can actually help us activate the uh, prefrontal cortex more. You know, we're not so caught by, by that. And so, um, yeah, we can, we can really see the way that uh, thoughts just proliferate. You know, I thought I'd read um, a little passage showing some of the effects here. This is from... Uh, a story of uh, uh, Achan Man. This is a book, uh, biography of Achan Man, one really the founder of the Thai forest tradition. It's a, I think this book is available online. It's a biography of him by uh, Achan Mahabua. And let me see, this is a passage in which uh, Achan Man, that's M-U-N, talks about uh, the kind of practice that he and the people he was working with. There would be little bands of monastics who would wander around what's now uh, northern Thailand and Burma, you know, in the, you know, uh, I guess really probably in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Ha Chan Man died in 1949. And they'd wander around. It was much more wild. You know, there were, you know... Uh, much more wild than it is now. I think, you know, unfortunately, a large number of trees have been cut down. Much of the rainforest in that area has been, been cut down. So, and he would, uh, he would invite monastics to work with fear that they had of being in the wilds. This, you know, working with fear was a main practice for these. You know, they, they just were living out in the wilds and, uh, you know, he would actually, people who had fear, you know, this isn't a technique we use at Spirit Rock, but he would actually assign people who had significant fear to do walking meditation in front of the cave of a tiger. You know, these, these sort of practices have not come to the West. <laughs> okay, but uh, this is, but he, the tigers, there were, were and still are tigers there. And this is a story about um, what happens when there's fear in a, a monastic's mind at night. Okay, this is from Achan Man. At night, 
When one's mind is attacked by fear, a practitioner forces oneself to do walking meditation in the open. The whole body will be enveloped by both a perspiring heat and a chilling cold, by the desire to pass urine and to defecate. The practitioner will be suffocated by fear. The threatening roar of a tiger from a nearby place or from far away at the foot of the mountains or on top of them only serves to increase the already suffocating fear. Direction or distance means nothing to such a practitioner. The only thought being that the tiger is coming to make a meal of, of, the, of, of in this case, him, and that the tiger is coming at this very moment. No matter how wide or vast that area might be, the practitioner will be hypnotized by the fear of believing that the tiger knows of no other place to go but the very spot where the practitioner is. The passages for recitation to prevent fear disappear. Ironically, what remains is the passage which only increases the fear. The practitioner recites, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. So we have our version of that, right? May not be the tiger, but I think the key there is just, you know, that close attention to what happens in the body and what, what, happens, what happens in the mind. And, and so yeah, maybe I'll just finish with a few other things that uh, the, the invitation is to study it. Again, make sure that you ascertain that the level is workable. We can be also begin to see different types of fears. Some are more based in bodily fears. Some may be a fears like those related to maybe to public speaking, a sense that almost like myself, you know, we, almost, we sometimes use the language, myself will die. If I have to do public speaking, something in me is going to die, right? We think that. Some, we think that, that. Or if I really admit this, some, you know, and so some of, some of the fear is about review, maybe revealing vulnerability or revealing limitation. So there are many dimensions. Some of it's on a raw physical level. Some of it's about our own way of being in the world. Some of it could be related to trauma, you know, whether it's personal trauma or intergenerational trauma, you know. Um, you know, take, you know, take a look at this. It's, um, it's really, it's really interesting. I'll just share one more, um, insight that I had from my practice, which uh, came earlier, which is at a certain point, I noticed that um, probably about 10 years into my practice, I had a retreat and I started to notice that there was almost like an intention to control experience moment by moment. Many of us may have some version of this. And I found this out only after 10 years of a lot of practice. I started to notice moment by moment, I was actually scared to be just with the present moment without a sense of control. Anyone relate to something like this? Yeah. I think it's quite common. And it was really interesting to stay at that retreat with my experience and a lot of times just noticing the fear. And, you know, at the time I said, you know, why am I fearful? Nothing's happening. No problems. But there was still almost like a fear of just being in the present moment that I need to kind of approach life with control. So this was getting to a deeper level of a fear that wasn't conscious to me for years and years and years. So the practice can open up to those those deeper levels, it can open up aspects that are more ordinary, just the feel, fear of being, you know, physical pain. It can also open up to ones that are more beneath the surface, some aspects of trauma. It can open up to, you know, dimensions of our construction of self. You know, I don't want to be seen this way or, you know, and again, we want to, you know, there can, can be intelligence there. And then even that fear that I was having of really just being fully in the present moment, 
But, you know, I, if you had asked me before that retreat, are you afraid of being in the present moment? I probably would have said no. But something opened up further. Right? So there, there are all these different levels. And in fact, maybe I'll, I'll talk next time. There's a teaching that when we, at certain levels, when we open up more deeply to experience, it's very natural for there to be sometimes even a protracted period of fear just of having that much openness with, without anything particular happening, just a kind of fear of um, maybe experiencing life without the usual constructions. Right, so I'll, I'll go more into that next time. It's a, and so we can start to see as we look there that there are these multiple types of fear, you know, and I, I didn't even mention the types of fear that are related to the social dimension, you know, and maybe I'll go more into that next time. But there, you know, just some of them I mentioned earlier could be related to, um, you know, fearing these people or that people, you know. You know, very, very intense now generally is a fear of immigrants in so many countries. You know, again, fear, you know, fear is being both stoked and manipulated or, you know, um, and so I think the invitation is to uh, take a look, see what's there, clarify the level of intensity. I would say if you're doing a lot of this also, bring in some of the heart practices like loving kindness or compassion. Do that five or 10 minutes a day. If you're, if you're looking more at fear, we want to be able to hold that with some compassion and kindness. Let's see. So let me, let me finish up. I'll, I'll end with yeah, really going back to those, those uh, quotations I gave earlier. And then we'll sit for a bit. From Thich Nhat Hanh, we have the power to look deeply at our fears, and then fear cannot control us. William Butler Yeats, the poet, to look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. And then Hafez, from I think about the 14th century, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. So thank you. And let's take a few moments just to reflect on what may have been uh, helpful, interesting, something you'd like to take further. Just take a minute or so. Anything you'd like to bring up, ask about, share? Let's go to our time of really uh, sharing, exploring together. I think we have uh, Emiko in terms of the order. We have, I see Rosie and Bernadette. Uh, Rosie first. Do you have a sense? Okay. I see Rosie, Bernadette, and Anna. Okay. Please, Rosie. Hi, Donald. Um, although I do have a tremendous fear of public speaking. <laughs> I really related to your knees not hit my um over Zoom, it's not as bad. I feel it a little, you know, I start perspiring a little bit. It's not as bad because it's, you know, it's not looking out at a huge group. But um so thank you for bringing that up and you know, saying that it's almost or in some cases you're more afraid of it than death, you know, the pull. <laughs> but the, what I wanted to share are two quotes that I loved. Um, in 
that relate to what you said. Uh, one, when you were talking about um, the quote about death, um, Thomas Aquinas, I thought Ram Das had a wonderful quote also, like, don't worry about death, it's perfectly safe. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to share that. And the other quote I had is, uh, worry, which for me is very much a fear, you know, probably like public speaking, but worry. Um, and there was a coffee mug that had a great saying, and you were saying that worry was in the future, not in the present. So the coffee mug said, um, don't tell me worrying doesn't work. Things I worry about never happen. <laughs> <laughs> Those are just two things I always remember and, and wanted to share. Yes. That's, that's a great one. We'll come back to that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, I think the Dalai Lama said something very similar. He said once that uh, um, I don't worry because if it happened in the past, it happened. And I, my worrying is not going to help. And if it's in the future, you know, my you know it hasn't happened yet, so my worrying is not going to help. So I try not to worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Bernadette, then Anna, yeah. Um, thank you so much for kind of addressing the trauma because I have a, I'm a recent trauma survivor um, who's trying to deal with the trauma um, actively as, you know, right now with yeah. counseling and therapy as well as mindfully with the meditation teachers because I've been mindful practitioner for like 16 years now. Yeah. So as I'm preparing to go into Spirit Rock for one-week retreat, I know those intense feeling might come up. But now what you told me today is kind of assess the workable range as I'm going into this one week deep meditation practice and so that I can kind of gauge whether I need to come out and do a grounding process outside or do or participate you know, in those uh, seven-day on-site retreats. So I thank you so much. This is very, very helpful. Yeah, thank, thanks, Bernadette. Yeah, really, really crucial to know when it's, uh, you know, basically when the activation takes you kind of over a certain threshold where it's too much. You know, we, we use different language, too much or overwhelm or whatever. And then to have some strategies that you use in those instances. And then when it's not there, you know, but it's getting close. We want to find ways to, what to deactivate, right? So you, you, you've gone through all that, I, I assume. And to, yeah, and just add a retreat to know that, uh, I, I would say, to know that you're, you can always uh, pull out if you're getting near that threshold. You don't have to continue. That, that's important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey. uh, Anna, please. Hi. Hi. Thank you. And also last week, um, last week I was so relieved to be back and I was like, okay, I was just missing the group because the few weeks before had been rather intense, especially since returning to Germany from my four week road trip in the States. And then sadly, it's going to get a little dark. So I'm sorry about that. Not just the light um on thursday night the following night um i fell asleep had bad dream opened my eyes and was hallucinating and that had happened 10 mm. days earlier mm. and that was fear in the presence <laughs> that yeah. was not it was really really strange and um i made it i mean i made it through but it's and that was the fear of my own insanity i was like okay they're gonna send me to a hospital Hmm. And I think that was my biggest fear because my family has done that, did that 23 years ago. Hmm. And it was probably just the peak of all of that coming together. So thank you for speaking about trauma. It explained some things. And what I actually ended up doing was call a psychiatric hospital because it was three o'clock in the morning. Wow. None of the bugs, falling asleep, things worked. And the doctor said, just do something that makes you feel good. Mm. I said, okay, I don't need to sleep because I was actually afraid of sleeping because it happened over twice. And the second time I looked at these figures, and I was like, I know you're not real. I'm going to switch on the light. 
when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't take drugs, so it was really that, and it helped. I just looked at my photos and didn't sleep and drove to my parents' house and then we celebrated my sister's wedding. So it was a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I'm still getting like antsy talking about it, but that was, I think, one of the few moments in my life I experienced the fear. Maybe the future fear was being sent away somewhere, but I'm 45, so they can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the presence felt pretty much unmanageable. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you had some uh, really good, skillful responses in the moment, right? I think that you know there are kind of two two key aspects. One is, you know, having even ahead of time a sense of what what's a skillful way to work with this when it comes up, and part of that is not feeding the, the negative narrative, right? And and just having that be really, really clear, and of course. Friends, community, support plays a big role too, right? Or, yes. uh, no, I called a friend in the morning and she was amazing. She was better than any psychiatrist. Yeah. She's just like, no, you don't need to sleep. You just need to rest a little, yeah. then work a bit, drive home safely. That's your job today. I was yeah. like, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate I appreciate your clarity. Thank you. No, and I appreciate all of you listening. I know it's a bit heavy. And one more thing. The dog I adopted seems to be a wolf dog. So if anybody in your group has ever had owned a wolf dog, put your my email is Anna at Annabauer.com. It's very easy. And I'm new to wolf dogs and they don't have them in Germany. Mm. I see somebody laughing here, Cindy, maybe you had one. If so, please get in touch. And I'm not desperate, but um it's very new. Yeah, yeah. Thank thank you, Anna, for being willing to share. Again, I think the the key, which is, you know, and for something of that level of intensity, I think it also is applicable to lesser intensity, is just have a, a skillful way of working when you go over a certain threshold where it's difficult, you know. And, of course, when it happens for the first time, we don't always have that, but we can have some ways of um, being skillful, like, you know, being with what is kind of ground, grounding in the, in the body where the body feels safe and being with what's pleasurable, not repeating the narrative or the storyline. The fear gets fed by repeating the storyline, whether it's a really intense one like you're describing or even something much less intense. And so, yeah, the, the narratives, uh, you know, that's what I, when I didn't had my, uh, what, 10 days of 15 hours a day fear, it was a lot about repetition of narratives. And it was really interesting, like like the uh, that coffee mug that Rosie talked about, that there was, uh, uh, I knew that none of it was true. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Good luck with the dog. <laughs> okay, uh, Sylvia, please. Hi. Um, thank you for bringing about um, talking about things that, you know, just look at what unpleasant, like fears is one of the topic. Um, when you ask, you know, look into yourself and what you fear the most. Um, I am um, recent cancer survivor and um, I haven't worked for a while. And just the fear of not knowing what is going to be happening to me in a month or two months or three months. That's yeah. the most, it's very um, challenging for me. Yeah. But like going back to the present moments of where I am at right now, it's really, it's helping. It's very calming. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's, so that's, that's a beautiful use of our practice, right? To, yeah, to not let the narratives take over. And just come back to the present moment. And again, if there was something that you could do that would help you know, well, that's wise to do. But in many cases, there's not. It's just the worry, right? And so then you can say, no, I'm, I'm just going to be in the present moment, not let that voice gain too much power. You know, and then, yeah, and then we want to distinguish between what's skillful to do and what's not. But it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're really... You know, benefiting from the practice to, uh, yeah, 
be be present, not like the fear get too strong or not let it take over. Thank you. Yeah, and then the other piece would do, I think would be to bring in some of the heart practices to know this is hard. This is a hard time and to hold with compassion and maybe the kindness whichever whatever helps in that way. Yeah. You know, there's that uh there's that very simple three-step uh practice from Kristen Neff which goes uh three steps. Number 1, just acknowledge this is hard. Number two, recognize that many other people are in this kind of situation. So we recognize the common humanity. And then thirdly, just offer some kind, supportive thoughts and feelings. And one can do that in two or three minutes and can do it uh, you know, a few times during the day. So I think Along with that, you know, the use of the mindfulness, just coming back to the present moment, I think bringing in the heart practices and, you know, and if possible, also like grounding further in the body, do walking, be with beauty. These are all really uh, great, great supports for, for, for being with what you're describing. Thank you for all okay. the tips. Thanks, Sylvia, and thanks for being willing to, to share. Okay, I think we're, we're we're both near. We're at the the time, and also I think we've uh, yeah. Thank you for those who shared, and I think also very important to go into uh, go into small fears, because <laughs> what we'll find is that some of the the actual experience is very very similar. Notice a small fear or anxiety. You know, I won't get this done in time or something like that. I mean, that can be big, but sometimes it's not so big. So study the small ones too, because the dynamics will be very, very similar. You know, you'll be, and, and watch the, you know, be with the body, be with the emotions, uh, watch the, the narratives, uh, the narrative uh, repeating themselves. Okay, so let's close with two things. And I want to thank, uh, before I, I go to closing, let me thank uh, Emiko. Let's have some, share some love for Emiko. <laughs> okay, yay! And, uh, <laughs> and then two things. First, to how many of you would like to uh, look at fear, anxiety, worry in the next period of time? How many of you would like to take that on? Okay. So set an intention now for what's, what will help you to explore. You know, would it be helpful to make a note to yourself uh, and post it somewhere? What will help you remember to explore this? And then what's, what's your intention? How, you know, whatever your intention is, whether you want to explore this or not, what's, the, what's, what's an intention coming out of our, our time together? Could be something totally unrelated to the topic that struck you that you want to follow. What's, what's the intention coming out of our time together? And then we close with the uh, dedication of merit, which is really about acknowledging interconnection. May the benefits of our time together be there for us, be there for people in our own circles, and then be there also beyond our own circles, ultimately reaching the circle of all beings. May our time together be a benefit for all beings, which includes us.
So thanks everyone. Uh, pleasure to be continued. And we'll, uh, yeah, we can, we'll say goodbye. We'll do our little shaking. Okay, till next time. And uh, if you want to uh, unmute and say whatever you'd like to say, feel free. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for their smiles, too. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Donald. So much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks, Emiko. Thank you. <laughs>